so empowering, so life-changing. Peter really did mean what he was saying when he said, to whom shall we go because you alone have the words of eternal life. Open that word to us and give us these keys that will help us experience those things you have spoken for us and over us in Jesus' name. Everybody shouted and said, Amen. Amen. Elevate your life. How do you do that? God wants you to experience supernatural elevation in your life this year. And Jesus gave his disciples power and authority. I have contended that one reason that we have not experienced the elevation that we have hoped for in our lives is because we have power. You're filled with the power. You've been, you've been baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2. But on the other hand, authority is a different matter. Amen. We need to understand authority. And I had intended beginning today to start talking about the 12 dimensions of authority, any one of which can radically change your life. And if you ever tap into two or more of them, talk about, make some changes and get some folks' attention, I promise you, you will. If a church ever comes to the point that they walk in the manifestation of all 12 of these, it will be radical beyond, well, it will be the book of Acts all over again. And I'm going to talk to you about that but I, I felt a little checking the Holy Spirit, my own spirit, by the Holy Spirit saying, don't go there just yet. Spend a little more time talking about what authority means. The reason that I feel compelled to do this is because I think there's probably no subject that is as misunderstood in the church as is the subject of spiritual authority. Authority in most people's minds is about position. It's about, bless God, I have authority around here. And like I've often said, the person that has to tell you the boss isn't. One has to say, I, I am the boss. You may have the title, but you don't have the testimony. Uh huh. This God that we are connected to is in the process of elevating people. In theology, I've shared with you before, there's actually an entire study in theology called redemptive lift. That's the term. Redemptive lift refers to this thing that happens in a country, a nation, a people, a family, the life of an individual, that when they embrace God, they start finding their lives elevated. The poorest countries in the world are those countries that are not Christian. It's true. Now, they have some extraordinarily wealthy people in those countries on many occasions, but many of them got to where they are by means that are less than scrupulous. But the average person, wealth doesn't affect them or touch them. I'm talking specifically about countries that are not Christian. Look at the, just do a quick Google study on the wealthiest countries in the world, and you will see that all of them are, are countries with Christian origin and roots. The thing that is amazing is when once you learn where the door is at, or a principle that results in elevation, a key, call it what you will, a portal. Once you come to this place and you come to understand a principle that can transform your life and you begin to employ that and breakthrough occurs, it becomes virtually impossible for you to go back to things the way that they once were. This is why you should never fear elevation and then falling back down to where you are. Satan wants to make us live with a fearful of belief that, well, even if we do get elevated, you know, then something's going to knock the props out from underneath us. No, no, no. Because once you learn where that door is at or you master that principle, it is impossible to unlearn it. It becomes so much easier to get, that, get to that place. I found that even in my own anointing as a pastor, as a speaker in conferences and doing the work that I do overseas. That breaking through into a dimension that I've not been to before, it's so much easier now for me to stay at that dimension than it was to get there in the first place. Amen. And I'll say it like this. You look in the Bible, and there are these stories that really make you wonder what's going on. Stories where God used people, and you sit back and say, on my best day, I wouldn't use somebody like that. Look at Samson. And people 
seriously through the years have asked me questions about how do you reconcile this with our understanding of God, Pastor, that Samson could have a life that was so horribly wrong and the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and use him so mightily. How do you rectify this? And the answer is actually very simple. Once you break into a certain strategic dimension, it's your responsibility to make sure your life continues to be consistent with the life that brought you to that place. Amen. Because once you get there, God doesn't take it back. Amen. The gifts and the callings of God are without metanoia, repentance, or God doesn't change his mind. Once he gives it to you, he doesn't say, shame on you. I'm taking it back. No, it's your responsibility to make sure you maintain the life and the passion that brought you there to begin with. Samson, as a child, was raised as a Nazarite and broke into a dimension of spiritual authority that the average person in Israel had never seen. And even though he had broken into that point and later let, allowed his life to fall into a state of ruin, that understanding of that dimension never left him, so much so that he literally crawled out of the bed of a prostitute and went and ripped the gates off a city and carried them up the hill and set them down. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You can misunderstand that. You can say God is condoning what I'm doing, and he isn't. The truth is you just learn how to move into that dimension Oh, I'm going to make it plain. I really am. There's another incredible story in the Bible about, about a day that God needed to send a word to his people. And because the prevailing influence of a culture that had drifted away from God had even had impact upon the church, God couldn't find a prophetic voice within his own, among his own people that he could use. He had to send a prophet in from somewhere else. To cry against the altar. Y'all remember that story? And God told him, you don't eat or drink in this place because the spirit of this place is so contagious that I don't want it to infect you. I've got to bring, I've even, I've got to import a voice from outside. And I don't want the spirit of this place to get a hold of you. So he came in and cried out against the altar. And there was an old prophet there. That when he saw that anointing, he remembered it. Because it used to be on him. And it awoken something in him. And a hunger. And he said, I want you to come and eat a meal at my house. And the prophet said, no, God has forbidden me to eat or drink anything in this place. To give the word and get out, lest that spirit of this place contaminate me. And the prophet said, but the Lord, I'm a prophet also, and the Lord spoke to me and told me to tell you he's changed his mind. You're supposed to come to my house and eat with me. And this man disobeyed God thinking that this other prophet had given him a word from God, which dare I say it is why you should always let the word be established in the mouth of two or three. Witnesses, don't let anybody control your life or manipulate you. Hmm. And when he walked into that man's house and sat down to eat, guess what happened? The Spirit of the Lord came upon the prophet who had lied. That was so out of touch with God, God couldn't even use him originally to bring the message to his people and had to import this other fellow to do it. But the Spirit of the Lord now came upon him. And he said, because you have disobeyed the voice of the Lord when you leave here, a lion is going to meet you and kill you. Now, how do you like that? And I've had people say, how could God use somebody who, first of all, was so remote from God and out of touch with God, God had to go around him to bring a message to the nation. And then secondly, how could the Spirit of the Lord come upon somebody after he had just bald-faced lied in the name of the Lord? Answer to that is very simple. Once you learn where that door is, the door doesn't move. It's like a key on a key ring. Once you learn which key opens that door, the lock doesn't change just because you put them back in your pocket again, shake them all up. You understand what I'm saying? Your responsibility is to make sure you keep your life at the place 
that it was that brought you to this juncture. Amen. Amen. In Psalms 113, verses 5 through 8, there's this, this incredible passage of Scripture. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? I love that. God's got to bend over to see what's going on in the heavens. That's how high my God is. Woo! He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and sits them with princes, with the princes of his people. Tell somebody that's me he's talking about. Would you do that? I love what Eugene Peterson said in the message. Who can compare with God, our God, so majestically enthroned, surveying his magnificent heaven and earth, he picks up the poor from out of the dirt and rescues the wretched who has been thrown out with the trash. Am I talking to anybody that got set by the curb during the course of their life? Am I talking to anybody that somebody passed you by and said you don't have what it takes? I want you to know they haven't seen in you what God has seen in you. But God said, I lift up the poor out of the dust and... oh. It's hard for you to picture it, but God's a dumpster diver. God goes to dumpsters looking for his treasure. And the discarded people in life are the ones that God finds value in. I'm talking to somebody in this place right now. There's elevation written all over your life and nobody's been able to see it. But God knows what his plans are for you. Woo! To experience elevation, you need to exercise spiritual authority over your own future rather than letting the enemy carry out whatever plans he has for you. And so that's why I'm talking about elevate your life. And in this part of the series, I'm discussing 12 dimensions of spiritual authority that I'll actually get to next week. The problem is everybody thinks they know what spiritual authority is. Most of us, our frame of reference is skewed. It's warped. We've been exposed to models of authority that are not correct models of spiritual authority. For most people, authority is as I expressed a few minutes ago. Bless God, I'm the boss around here. You can do things the way that I want them done. You're going to line up the way that I need, a, to, need it to be lined up to, or you're, I'm going to shut you down. That happens on the job. It happens in families. It happens in churches. I'm the pastor here. I'm chairman of the board. Y'all never heard stuff like that around churches, have you? And I want to say it again. If you got to say it, you isn't it. Forgive me. Amen. Communication is really important because real spiritual authority is not autocratic. It's based on something else altogether. And the reason that these people came to Jesus, the chief priest, the scripture is careful to emphasize that. The chief priest and the elders and the teachers of the law, the reason they came was because there were three specific things that happened in this 11th chapter of Mark. Before they came to Jesus. One is Jesus sends two of his disciples to go get a colt upon which man has never ridden before. And tells them go get him and bring him. And if anybody asks you what you're doing tell them the Lord has need of it. And they'll let you get by with that. Between me and you if I were one of the two I would have wanted a little bit more than that. I'm serious. You think you just there's so much humor in the Bible that we just overlook. We don't even know it's there. Amen. Let me do it like this. Some brother drives up in a brand new Cadillac, and I send you out and say, Go get that Cadillac because Pastor has need of it. <laughs> and when he asks you what you're doing, you say, The pastor has need of this. Oh, sure, like that's gonna make a really big difference around here. Amen. 
I tell you what you're going to do. You're going to say, hold on right there while I call 911. Amen. What Jesus did in doing this was demonstrate incredible authority over resources. Secondly, he came to the fig tree that I've already spoken about and cursed it though it was not the time of figs. Because as I've already explained, as the second Adam, he had authority over seasons. So they're now seeing authority in Jesus over resources. They're secondly seeing authority in Jesus over seasons where he don't have to wait for his ship to come in. He stretches out his hand and there it is. That's why he cursed the fig tree, though it was not time of figs. The third thing that they saw Jesus do that made them question his spiritual authority was whenever he platted a cord of whips and drove the money changers out of the temple. In so doing, he was demonstrating authority over two other things, demonic systems and religious systems, which are really, dare I say it, almost the same thing. I know I am. Thank you, Sister Carter. Amen. That may upset some folk, but that's the way it is. Jesus drove money chain. Who? Why didn't they? There were many people there. Why didn't they all stand together? He's only one man. And look at him and say, just who do you think you are? This is the way we've been doing things for years. Why didn't they do that? It was because when he did it, he had authority that they recognized. Position can't give you that. And the reason the scripture emphasizes it was the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders is they were the ones that had the title, but they didn't have the authority. But he didn't have the title, yet he had the authority. Woo, am I talking to anybody right now? Watch the way this unfolds. When he spoke, there was something in the timbre of his voice. Years ago, they tell the story of a man that was a lion tamer in a circus. And he would get into the cage with these vicious beasts, wild lions from Africa and tigers. And you could hear the snap of the whip. And you could see him as he held that chair in his hand and commanded those beasts to go through what they had been trained to do. And then suddenly, a storm came and knocked the lights out. And it was pitch dark inside that tent. Now, cats can see very well at night, but human beings cannot. Especially if we have been near ambient light, we lose our night vision when the light first goes out. And it takes time to adjust to, and regain our night vision. Everybody knew that by the time the lights came back up, that man would be dead. But he wasn't. Instead, they heard the steady crack of the whip and heard that steady voice saying what the cats were supposed to do in giving them their orders and instructions. You see, the cats didn't know that the man couldn't see in the dark. I'm having too much fun. I just, mm. amen. And your voice is what determines whether or not you experience elevation, the authority. It's not your position, it's your voice. Amen. Somebody in the building say hallelujah. hallelujah. Therefore, communication becomes extraordinarily important on this subject of spiritual authority because there's so many things that because we have been exposed to bad models, so many things that we think that this means that it doesn't mean at all. And embracing the wrong model will actually cause you to lose spiritual authority. You know, communication is important. Like the judge who was interviewing the woman who was in the middle of a divorce and regarding her pending divorce, he began to ask her a series of questions. What are your grounds for divorce? He said. And she said about four acres and a nice little home in the middle of the property, and it's got a stream running by it. He said, no, no, I mean, what is the foundation of your case? 
And she said, the foundation is made of concrete and brick and mortar. And he said, no, no, that's not what I mean. What are your relations like? And she said, I have an aunt and an uncle living here in town. And my husband's parents live here too. He said, no, that's still not what I mean. Do you have a real grudge? And she said, no, we have a two-car carport. We've never really needed a grudge. Amen. And the judge shook his head and says, Do your does your husband ever beat you up? And she said, yes, at least two mornings a week he gets up before I do. And out of frustration, the judge asked, ma'am, why do you want a divorce? She said, I don't. It's my husband. He says, it's impossible for him to communicate with me. Amen. <laughs> and when... And when you are talking about spiritual authority, it's important that we know what we're saying. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 46 tells us, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. That is exactly the opposite order that most people think this comes in. We think the spiritual comes first. Why? Because God, who is spirit, existed before the natural world began the spirit dimension preceded the creation of the spirit were of the the natural order and all of that but that the reason that this seems to be contradictory is not because there's an error it's because paul is addressing things from our perspective he's saying that we see first not the spiritual what we see first is the natural and then because we see the natural we gain insight into the spiritual by making comparisons between the two. Which if you recognize 1 Corinthians 15, it's the great chapter on the resurrection. And he proceeds to do exactly that very thing by making comparisons with, between the natural and the spiritual. By talking about how death and a seed is changed. Grain of wheat, let's say for our purposes, an acorn that remains an acorn on a shelf until you put it in the ground. Leave it on the mantle, it will always be an acorn. Put it in the ground, cover it up, let the sun warm it, the rain come and make it damp, and the next thing you know, there's a little oak tree poking its way through the soil. Paul said, some of you that are doubting the resurrection, just look at the natural, because that will help you understand the spiritual concept of a resurrection. That seed, we learn in science, remember this from early science? That seed literally begins to die and decay, and that's when germination occurs. And Paul is saying, so it is with a resurrected life. Now, having said that, this is one of the reasons, as I've told you through the years, I love the book of Hebrews, one of my favorites. My three favorites again, Psalms, Hebrews, Ephesians. Now, I hope there's nothing wrong with having favorites. They just speak to me so eloquently. Psalms tells me where I live. <laughs> Ephesians tells me where I want to go. Hebrews tells me how to get to where I'm coming from to where I need to be. Because it ties Old Testament and New Testament together. And whoever the author is has this incredible way of being able to explain Jewish theology and relate it to the fulfillment of Christ in his earthly ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then what happens with the church thereafter. Paul, Apollos, Timothy, probably Paul. An incredible book. And I love reading that because it employs this spiritual, uh, rather this, 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 this pro progression that I'm talking about, that the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And notice also, before I leave this point, the Jewish way this is expressed. They use double negatives. The spiritual is not first. Now, why didn't he just say, the natural is first. That's the way we would do it in English. Instead, he enunciates the negative. The spiritual is not first. Well, that's understood if you say that the natural comes first, right? The reason they do that is to add extra emphasis. It's like italicizing it, underscoring it, putting it in parentheses, caps, okay? That's what he's doing here. 
He's emphasizing that if you want to know the spirit world, you, you can understand it by making corollaries and comparisons with the natural world. Having said that, forgive me while I do a little pastoring, because from time to time people will ask me, Pastor, why don't we have all of this Jewish emphasis on things here? And I'm not against some of those things. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not against them at all. But it's a different matter for me to do something in my personal devotional life and then to make that a standard for the church. You hear what I'm saying? And I'm not talking about whether you should do something in your personal devotional life if you feel led to do it, by all means. But when you require it of the church, that's a different matter. For example, I see many Christians that now want to become, what, or they, not so many, but I mean you find some, Messianic Jews. They were never Jews, but now that they're saved, they want to go back to the Jewish roots of the church, and they want to incorporate Jewish practices that were never a part of the Gentile tradition. And they want to know why doesn't the church do that. And I see people wear yarmulkes to church, you know what I mean? You do that, that's cool. I'm not going to ever say anything to you about it. That's your personal devotional life. But between me and you, you probably will never see me go to church carrying a shofar under my arm. That's that ram's horn that's made like a horn. Am I against people doing it? Not at all. Understand, I'm talking about a standard for the church as opposed to what I employ in my own devotional life now. I see others that have a prayer shawl. One of my very good friends who's going to be with the Lord, missionary Chris Jones, gave me a beautiful prayer shawl. Chris was Jewish and was Messianic. And he gave me that because of what it represents. It's in my office. You'll see it. But I, I, I haven't pulled it out to pray with it because the symbolism meant more to Chris than it does to me, but the thought meant a lot to me. And what each of those things represent in that prayer shawl is what speaks to me. Not the prayer shawl, what they represent. Am I making any sense here? In fact, you will find an incredible demonstration of what spiritual authority actually means when Paul, watch this because I'm going somewhere, he is being followed around by Judaizers. That's what the scripture called them. Jews who came in privately to spy out the liberty of the converts. He uses that phrase in Galatians that Paul was making. They came to spy out their liberty. Now, real graphic and plain, forgive me, but Jews circumcised Gentiles in those days did not. When he said spy out, he meant they literally went to the bathroom when you did to see. That's graphic, but that's in your Bible. And they gave Paul grief. Most people think that those were just Jews. Uh-uh. They were Jews that had been baptized with the Holy Spirit that converted to Christianity that wanted Paul to make all the Gentiles become Christianized Jews. This is historically validated, by the way. I'm not making this up. So much so that when Paul was arrested, do you know who had him arrested? It was his own spirit-filled brothers. That's right. Amen. Didn't know that, did you? And I'll tell you what else happened. Paul actually went back to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. You know why? He said that he submitted themselves to him lest by any means he had run in vain, referring to his teaching that he didn't want to have led people astray. He went back, explained to them what, talk about submission to spiritual authority. Here is the, the apostle who writes half the New Testament, who probably did more to impact the kingdom of God and the world for the kingdom than all of the other 12 put together. But he submits himself to them for them to evaluate his ministry. Woo. Amen. This is not some harsh, bless God, we're the council. Paul is demonstrating what real authority means by submitting to them. And this is what they did. They heard him out and issued a letter containing five things that they said that Jewish 
that, that Gentile converts to Christianity were required to do. Not one of those had anything to do about blowing a shofar, wearing a yarmulke. You hear what I'm saying? Wearing the talit. They were things like only worship one God, don't eat things strangled, don't drink blood, no fornication, things offered to idols, leave them alone. Those were the five things. You find it in Acts chapter 15 if you wish to read it and research it yourself. What blows me away is here is a man who has had private revelation from God. Oh, can't talk to me. I spent three years in the desert with the Lord Jesus, and he gave me personal revelation. Oh, really? Paul submits himself, and here's where I'm coming from with this, that real spiritual authority is not lording it over anybody else. It is based upon servanthood and submission that you can model the ministry of Jesus. Mm. And Paul is saying that we first understand the spiritual, not first, not by looking at the spiritual. We first understand the spiritual if we have understood the natural. We've got to see the natural, and out of that we draw corollaries. Because of that, there are 12 secular kinds of authority that all have in some way or other a representation of themselves in what constitutes spiritual authority. These 12, very quickly, functional authority. This is the authority we give to one another in society in order that our lives and homes can function properly. This authority can be work-related. It can be social. It can be recreational. An example of functional authority in the home is, is that over, of parents over children, for example. That's the natural order. Amen. It's who decides whether we go to Burger King or McDonald's. It's functional authority. Amen. Another example of authority, recreational authority perhaps, is the authority in a football game that the quarterback has to modify a play based upon what he has seen the defense doing at the last minute. Functional authority. Why are you going to stay locked in to doing it a way that you already know they've read and that will not succeed? Social authority. Another form of, I'll move on, persuasive authority, number two. This is the authority granted to someone by others who have been moved to embrace their leadership because of the persuasiveness of the one that is leading. Oh, there's a powerful understanding of this in the Word of God. Persuasive authority is very important. Isaiah 1 and 18, come now and let us reason together. <laughs> Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. Amen. On the other hand, persuasive authority can be very bad if people persuade you to do the wrong thing. Amen. This is Satan in the garden showing Eve the fruit and saying, has God really said? And when Eve sees the fruit that is to be desired for food and to uh, make one wise, she partakes of it. Another type of authority is legislated authority. This is authority that is established by legislation. The legal authorities within a system decide that society better functions with these particular laws or requirements in place. And we have all learned to, to accept that. Might not like it, but you're going to pay your taxes come April 15. I laugh. There's so much stuff that's bogus in politics these days. Forgive me. I'm on both sides. I'm not choosing a party. We're supposed to be altruistic and want to pay our taxes. Right. I hadn't seen anybody lining up saying, can I give mine early? If you buy into that, all I can say is, look at Al Gore, who was struggling to sell the cable company he had before the tax increase came about. And he was one of those permitting that we've got to give to help the world. Meaning give to me and I'll help the world. And some of you don't like that, but that's just the way it is. 
Amen. You believe everything they tell you out of Washington, D.C., whether it's a donkey or an elephant speaking, you're in trouble. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be offensive. Amen. Thank you. I know it is. Thank you very much. Amen. Make it plain, Rev. Make it plain. Amen. Delegated authority. This is authority that someone else who has authority has given to you. It can be assignment related, such as when your boss promotes you to be over a certain division, or it can be task related. Jesus did this in Luke 10, 17 to 20, when the 72 returned that he had given authority. They said, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. He said, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you in my name. Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Amen. Well, that's powerful. Do you know that the English translation of what comes next is not even correct? It, it's not fully correct. That's a better way to say it. And it says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Do you know what the literal translation means? That Jesus leapt for joy. We said, when you... This is why you should rejoice, not because demons are subject to you, but because your names are written in heaven. And he leaped for joy when he said that. Boy, that'll shake up a few churches I know of. Amen. But that's what it means in the original Greek. What is he saying? Everybody's hung up on casting out demons. Boy, once your destiny is written in heaven, oh, then you've got something that you can elevate your life to. That's what you ought to be rejoicing about. Amen. Amen. Watch this now. Let me move on. Positional or hierarchical authority. This is the position of authority that someone who is a supervisor or a boss or has over others because of, of the, the title they hold. Moving on from that, technical authority. This is the authority that you grant to someone because they have expertise in areas that you are not acquainted with or have knowledge of. For example, I can bet you that I can get you a cheaper rate on brain surgery if you let me do it. I'll give you a much better rate on open hearts than you will get at St. Luke. Not going to guarantee the outcome. And if you don't mind, could I have my payment in advance? That's what that means. You submit to certain authorities because they have technical expertise and you know that what is going to happen requires that. Same thing is true with a pilot on a plane or captain on a boat. There's negotiated authority. This is the authority we grant to others after first discussing its guidelines or parameters. We negotiate and we decide. We also call these boundaries, right? Amen. You have them in the home. You have assignments. You have tasks even. Particularly in today's busy world where husbands and wives work. And maybe you can't hire, you cannot afford to bring someone in from outside to keep the home clean. So you split up assignments, right? And the wife doesn't expect the husband to do hers. And the husband doesn't expect vice versa for the wife to do what he has been assigned or agreed to do. Then there's traditional authority. Traditional authority can be a persuasive force. For example, Robert Pace and I were talking this morning in the office, and it's hard for us in America, in the West for that matter, meaning Western Europe and meaning Canada and North America in general, the U.S. and Canada, hard for us to realize that in most nations of the world, marriages are arranged by families. We fall in love. What do we have here? Speaking of which, this Friday night is our winter gala. If you're not coming, I hope you'll change your mind. We're going to have a great time. Lovers young and old. We might even drop a Barry White or two right on there. Maybe a little Beyonce in the mix. Eh? No, I'm sure it's going to be amazing grace and a mighty fortress is our God. And oh, the blood of Jesus. Amen. 
Traditional authority is important. If you don't believe that can control your life, you're wrong. Do you know that, on the other hand, there are more divorces in the West than there are in those countries where marriages are arranged? The percentage of divorce is higher in countries where people fall in love. I fell in love. You know? On the other hand, where they're arranged, marriages literally last longer because that's the power of tradition in their culture. You don't believe that exists? Look in the Bible. Jacob served seven years to marry Rachel, and on the night of his wedding night, when he had a few too many and was getting happy, Laban substituted his older daughter that wasn't as good looking. And Jacob woke up in the morning and said, Man, <laughs> ah! <laughs> it's in your Bible. You say, Why didn't he know the difference? I, I don't, I'm having too much fun today. There used to be a country and western song, they all look good at closing time. I guess that's why. Y'all pray for me. I need, I, need, I need the Lord's help right now. And he substitutes Leah. And Jacob puts up with it because that was the culture. I see this all the time in Africa where they arrange weddings. They first have a traditional ceremony, and then they'll have the actual civil ceremony later. But the traditional ceremony, the family of the husband is expected to pay a bridal price. India, I think it's a reverse, isn't it? The bride pays the price. I like that system a lot better, personally. <laughs> in Africa, it's called Labola. Sounds too much like Ebola to me. <laughs> and literally, families get together at the traditional ceremony, and you know what they do? They, it's Kiwanuka in East Africa. They will literally negotiate the price of the bride, whether it's so many cattle or car or whatever. Amen. And that has to be paid for the bride. That's traditional. And, buddy, if you don't think that's powerful... I promise you it is. And that's why when a woman leaves her father's home and goes to marry a man, if something turns out that's not right, you know what that father-in-law's got to do? Bring every one of those cows back to that. I want this one, and I want that one. And, you know, he's got he's to pay that price back. I'll tell you what that does. <laughs> if I'm the daddy and I got all those cows, I tell that daughter, you better straighten it up or <laughs> Now I got them. I'm not giving them back. You're going to have to get some stuff together. <laughs> and that's why they don't have a lot of divorces in Africa. That's a simple version, but that, that's... You think I'm making that up? I'm not. I'm telling you. There's charismatic authority. This is the authority we give to someone we have high regard for because they have such charisma. Amen. It speaks to us. A positive example of this is look at the charisma of Martin Luther King Jr. whose speech I heard as a child still resonates and can bring tears to my eyes when I hear it today. The speech, I've got a dream. Who hasn't been moved by that? Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi. The selflessness, the sacrificial living on the part of these individuals. This is real Charisma. Amen. A negative example would be Jim Jones or Adolf Hitler. One of my spiritual sons and his wife, pastor in Germany. They're German. He's Croatian, raised in Germany. But he said, you can't believe how compelling Hitler's speeches are until you hear him in German, if you understand German. He said, it's, it, the guy was an orator like you cannot imagine. My time is gone. Lord, where did it go? This is a bad example of charismatic authority. Amen. Then again, there is coercive authority. And here's where most believers get off track. They think coercive authority is what's supposed to be used in the church. It isn't. And i got to wrap this up. Amen. 
Coercive, coercive authority is the type of authority used by someone that rules by force. It's a bully in a school. Amen. Amen. And there's this program on TV called Bully Beatdown. Anybody ever see that program? You won't try, you won't try that stuff bullying people in church. Amen. You don't even really try that outside. Somebody's going to beat a bully down after a while. You know what I mean? Amen. Think of Muammar Gaddafi, who when he was being killed, asked his people, why are you doing this? As they were killing him at that very moment, killing him, why are you doing this? You saw the video on YouTube. Couldn't believe that people would dare stand up against him. Saddam Hussein, another example of spiritual authority that is co authority that is coercive. And I've seen church leaders misuse spiritual authority. And they think that authority means to be coercive, use force. We're going to put you out of the church if you don't do this. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever, you heard about that? Amen. Then there is relational authority. This is the authority you give to those who are close to you, such as family or friends. They can say things to you nobody else can say to you. I'll give you an example. Part of what I function in here is relational authority because I've been here so long. I don't need to use coercion. And you shouldn't either. Live the life in front of people and be there to help others. And they will listen to you when they... People don't know, care how much you know till they know how much you care. Amen. I think, for example, of some of the things that happened shortly after I came here. Think of Francis Nash who heads up the ministry out in the lobby, the bookstore ministry. You know why Francis will let me tell her anything that I feel God lays on my heart to tell her? Because I was there whenever her husband Jim was diagnosed with colon cancer and was with them in the two months before they died. he died. I was there. And during the years, it's what I'm really driving at is it's serving that is the basis of authority. It's not a position. It's not a title. The final form of authority that I would mention is not relational. But I will tell you this. Be careful what relationships you allow in your life. Because they will end up speaking into your life. You hear what I'm saying? Amen. Then there's natural authority. This is the authority that court systems would support were it to be questioned. But perhaps it's never been legalized by a lawmaking assembly. Natural authority. It's authority that exists just because nature. For example, uh, a, a parent has a th legal authority or, and is guardian of their own children. What gives them that authority? Did court get together and say, well, uh, you know, I really think parents ought to have authority over their own kids. And they didn't do that before there ever was a court. Natural authority existed there are some truths that, as Thomas Jefferson declared, are self-evident. And this is what I'm talking about when I speak of natural authority. To summarize it all, Jesus has just sent two disciples, and they are demonstrating his authority over resources. And wow, don't we want that in our lives, to call forth resources? Jesus says, go get that colt that's never been ridden. Then he walks over to a tree, and it's not the time or it's season. And he says, that doesn't matter to me. I've got authority over seasons. Wouldn't you like to break some seasons in your life right now? Come on, help me out. Has it been a difficult season for somebody? Is there anybody that would like for there to be a new season in their life? Jesus stretches out his hand and demonstrates authority over nature and seasons. And then he walks into the temple and demonstrates authority over both religious and demonic systems. And when he does, it blows the minds of the teachers of the law and the great chief priests and the elders of the nation of Israel. And they walk up and said, we got the title. But it's obvious you have the testimony. How'd you get that? 
Because we think that it's all about self-promotion. It isn't. And I conclude with this. Where did it come from? It came from his whole demeanor. Who being Lord of all. Thought it not robbery. Though he were equal to God. To be made in the form of a servant. Where do you get authority? A serving others. That's where you get it. And so when I talk about spiritual authority. I'm not talking about controlling people. You can control circumstances in your life much better when you have learned to serve others. Stand with me. I've got, I'm done. I'm over my time, actually. And I want you to come and join me as I pray. Next Sunday, I will talk to you about the 12 dimensions of spiritual authority. I won't finish it, but I'll get started. And trust me, one of them can transform your life. Two or more. Everybody will notice you when you walk by. Come join me now and pray with me. Come. I want to pray with you. I want to close the service here today in the altar and pray that God will release authority in your life that will transform you. Amen. Anybody have a season they want to change? Anybody have a... I'm going to ask that again because I, maybe I'm in the wrong house. Would somebody direct me to where there's some folks that need a season change? Yeah, I thought so. Spiritual authority is an expression of humility. It is an expression of servanthood. And the reason Jesus had it in spades, he was obedient to the Father. This is what Paul, who is the greatest example of spiritual authority in the New Testament, demonstrates to us by going back to the council at Jerusalem. Though he is writer of half of the New Testament, our apostle, a man that will do more to reach God than all of the others perhaps put together, but he submits himself because authority is in submission and humility. This is what Ephesians 5 talks about in husband-wife relationships, and this is one reason women run from any teaching on submit to your husband, because they think that it means you got to be his floor mat no Paul begins Ephesians 5 by saying husbands and wives submit to one another that's the basis of spiritual authority you can't have authority if you're not submitted father I pray right now that you will break through in our lives and teach us the meaning of spiritual authority where we can say to the enemy, be gone and he's got to flee. Get out of our